Hey, it's Zach here, and super quick before we dive into the show. If you haven't already, I want to make sure that you have subscribed to my free weekly Case of the Mondays newsletter, because it is where I share my best advice, strategies, and mindsets to help you design a creative career that you absolutely love showing up for every Monday morning. When you sign up, I'll even send you a bonus five-day email course to help you clarify and prioritize the next small steps in your unique path to success. To sign up, just visit optimizeyourself.me slash newsletter. All right, on to today's episode. My name is Zach Arnold, and I'm a former Hollywood film and television editor turned career strategist and the creator of Optimize Yourself, where I help artists, creatives, and storytellers just like you design the more balanced, more sustainable, and more fulfilling creative career that you deserve. In a nutshell, I'm Tim Ferriss meets Ted Lasso, minus the mustache, because I am obsessed with both learning everything I can about optimizing human potential while also inspiring you to realize yours. If you are ready to step outside your comfort zone, let's dive right in and unlock the optimized version of you. Hello, and welcome to the Optimize Yourself podcast, where I share honest and candid conversations with best-selling authors, world-class athletes, Hollywood legends, elite experts in a variety of fields, as well as everyday people that are achieving extraordinary things. It means the world to me that with all the podcast choices out there, you have chosen to invest your valuable time, energy, and attention with me. Now, before we get started, don't forget to visit optimizeyourself.me slash podcast so you can subscribe, leave a review, and so you can also download your unique customized podcast playlist where I'm gonna send you the five best expert interviews from our archives to help you achieve your specific goals. So on that note, without further ado, let's get right to today's guest. I am super excited about my interview today because I've been trying to lock down Kelly for over a year, but that is such the case when you're trying to schedule time with one of the hottest and most successful television editors in the world. And Kelly and I ended up getting our money's worth. Get this, we talked for over two and a half hours, which is my longest episode in the history of podcasting over 150 episodes. Needless to say, I have broken our conversation down into two parts, and this is part one. Part two is going to be coming up in a couple of weeks. If you're not familiar with Kelly Dixon already, she is the Emmy-winning editor of such iconic shows as Better Call Saul, Breaking Bad, The Walking Dead, and Shameless, just to name a few. She's been nominated for an editing Emmy every single year since 2012, winning in 2013 for an episode of Breaking Bad, and she has been nominated for an Eddie Award seven out of the last eight years, and she has received numerous other nominations as well. Needless to say, Kelly is a film editing badass. And in our conversation today, we're going to dive as deep as I've ever gone into all the steps that are necessary to climb from the bottom of the ladder to the top in Hollywood, especially if you're interested in transitioning from being an assistant to being an editor. We go over all the details of Kelly's overnight success story, where it took her just short of 20 years of being an assistant before exploding onto the scene with Breaking Bad. We chat about the mindset that's necessary to persevere, how to build relationships with producers, directors, and your editors so you can put yourself in a position to be promoted when the time is right, how to develop your skills as an editor even if you're buried with assistant work all the time, and most importantly, we talk about the importance of playing chess with your career and making the right strategic moves rather than always chasing after the next shiny object and playing a game of checkers. And now, without further ado, part one of my interview with Kelly Dixon. 
I'm here today with Kelly Dixon, member of American Cinema Editors and editor of little known shows that you may or may not have heard of in the last few years if you have a pulse and an internet connection. Shows such as Breaking Bad, Better Call Saul, The Walking Dead, and many, many others. And I will be a total, total fanboy right now and tell you that of all the interviews I've wanted to do, this has been the top of my list for like a year. So I am so appreciative to have you with me today, Kelly. Wow. Um, thanks, Zach. I mean, I don't even know what to say. I had no idea that you wanted to do this for a year. Wow. I feel terrible now that I, I made you wait all this time. Oh, no. You've, trust me. It usually takes me between three and six months to get just about anybody on these shows because especially those that are in our industry are so stinking busy that they'll say, oh, my God, I would love to be on your show. How are you in five months? I'm like, oh, great. Okay. Yeah, we'll make it work. And then I do. But this was one that I, I knew was going to be worth the wait. And hopefully I can uh, make it live up to the hype on my end. I know that you can do it on your end because I've I've heard you speak many, many times before. And for anybody that kind of lives and breathes the, the panel circuit in L.A., some of this might be repetitive, but I have listeners all over the planet. And I know that many of them have never heard your story. And I think it's really, really important that they understand your story because I think it's really, really inspiring. But the one thing that I'm going to say going into this, I'm going to make it a little interesting. And I'm not going to allow you to say that you got lucky. All right. I'll try and see if I can work my way around that. Because I've, I've heard you speak before and you are so incredibly humble about how you got where you are. And I appreciate that about you, but I, I don't think that luck plays quite as much into it as uh, as I know that you like to say that it does. So I might uh, I might hit the buzzer every now and then if I hear the word luck come up too many times. But other than that, um, we're just going to riff. Uh, so what, where I was as, as I'm looking very furiously on my phone now for th a thesaurus till I come up with other other words. <laughs> fortunate, <say> uh, grateful. <laughs> yeah, that was my first one. Was fortunate. Job fell from the sky. <laughs> but what, what the the first thing that I really really want people to understand about you is your origin story because your origin story is fairly unique and there are so many lessons that can be taken out of this for anybody that wants to not only just become an editor in television because that's very very niche but just for somebody that wants to do creative work that feels like they've gone through the struggle for too long they're not right for it maybe they should just give up maybe they should do something else anytime that I hear somebody say something like that. My first thought is, you need to talk to Kelly Dixon. So let's talk a little bit about your origin story. Tell us about the the, the story that uh, that so many have heard now. Well, that you know, edit this out if you need to. But what are you actually re referring to? Because I just want to make sure that I can like, you know, summarize it well enough. What part? What I'm like just, now? Because I'm sitting here going. What part of what origin story? What is that? What do you mean? Well, the, I, th I think that, and I won't edit it out, by the way. Um, but I think that the the one thing that's unique about your story, and there are a lot of things that are unique about it, but the one thing that stands out for so many when they talk about it, you kind of have to give the elevator pitch, is how much time you spent being an assistant oh, before okay. you had the rise to stardom, and just the the level of diligence and perseverance that you had. So I think just kind of start from, hey, I decided I want to get into the industry, and then here was my path. And it's a very, very unusual one. Okay. I'll try and go fast on this too. Okay. So I went to college in Colorado. Um, I went to Colorado State University and I was majoring in journalism. And I really actually wanted to write 
advertising and there was no advertising major at my school. There was journalism and there was business. So I sort of carved myself a major. Um, I majored in journalism, but I also had a concentration in business. And, and so, you know, that, that's what I did. And, and when I came out to Los Angeles, I, I had some cousins and an aunt out here and they said, oh, you need, to, I hadn't really never really thought about what I was going to do after college. And they said, oh, you must come out here. There's so many opportunities. So I came out here and I figured, okay, I have a place to stay and stuff like that. And then um, I got out here and I started reading ad week and I was very, very excited to um, just get in a mail room. So I, I came out here and I, you know, I was trying to look at all of the, you know, sort of classifieds and see if there was an opening in a mailroom. I really had no idea. I didn't really have much guidance and I had no idea and I couldn't get in anywhere. So I started working in like a, a Xerox place. Um, it was called Pip Printing and it was on Sunset and over by uh, the Cat and the Fiddle, I think it wasn't that. No. Yeah, the cat and the fiddle, which is now closed. I could never get in. I got a job there, and um, and then my cousin um, knew a guy, the guy who ran the mailroom at MGM. Um, and I thought, well, you know, I really wasn't planning on getting into the film industry because I figured the only people that got into the film industry were people whose parents were in the film industry. And as much as I liked movies and stuff, I just kind of figured there's no way to break into that. I also had a first cousin who got in with the DGA trainee program and she was well on her way at that point. I think she was working for Star Trek, the next generation, and she has done a bunch of movies and she kind of encouraged me to take the DGA trainee test. And so I, I kind of did, but I was like, not really, you know, I, I just didn't really know what an AD did. And, you know, so I ended up getting this job as, as a, a mailroom person at MGM. And I sort of ran around uh, MGM delivering the mail to, you know, the top execs. Alan Ladd was like the top guy at that time. And I think uh, John Goldwyn was over there at that point and um, a bunch of post-production people like, gosh, I can't remember all their names. Anyway, so I did that for six months and I got to know a lot of like PAs, uh, production assistants and stuff. And so I figured, well, you know, that's kind of a cool job. You get to like wear jeans to work and you get to ride a bike around the studio a lot. And I had met a few PAs. Um, I had a couple friends that were working on Cheers at the time. One of them is Pete Chacos, who is now a major multiple Emmy winner. And uh, he does uh, multicam. I think he, he right now he works on the Big Bang Theory. But I knew him when he was a PA on Cheers. And so, you know, I thought, well, maybe that would be kind of cool. I guess you could be a production assistant. I just really had no idea you know, about being an editor, I'd done a little bit of editing in college for like broadcast news kind of thing, but I never really, I mean, and I liked it and I was pretty good at it, but it wasn't, I never really did much narrative stuff. So anyway, um, I was delivering the mails probably like, I don't know, maybe six months into the job. And, um, there was a woman on the eighth floor at MGM and she worked for one of the TV execs and she said, Hey, do you want to be a production assistant? And I'm like, yeah, I'd love to do that. And she's like, well, I have a friend of mine who works on 30 something and they're looking for a PA. And I'm like, wow. I mean, I didn't really know the show, but I knew that it was a hit. Um, it had just finished his first season. And so I, I went and interviewed over there and I ended up getting the job, which was great. And so I went to work over at 30 something, which was over at 
uh, the CBS Radford lot. And um, I was one of two PAs. We didn't have like set PAs there. We had two PAs that pretty much work for everybody. And so I worked for Marshall Herskovitz and Edward Zwick, um, who were the executive producers of that show. And um, Scott Winant was uh, the supervising producer of that show at the time. And so I worked for that over there and I started hanging out in editorial. At first, I thought that I really wanted to be in camera. I, I thought, oh, this is kind of cool. You know, you, you get to be like right where everything is all the time. And I thought this would be great to be on the camera crew. But at the time, it was one of those things where most camera crews were only guys because the equipment that was still on film and the equipment was so heavy that they didn't really like to hire girls. And most of the camera crew, like, you know, like loaders or second assistants were sons or nephews of the DP or the operator or the, the focus puller first assistant. So I kind of sort of you know, kind of gave that up. And, and then I started, um, uh, hanging around an editorial, which I thought was actually pretty cool because, you know, editorial actually started when production started, but they worked for months and months after production wrapped. And I hated looking for a job. So I was like, well, heck, this is great. I'm actually pretty good at, you know, editing and, you know, and the and the one thing I say this to assistants and like PAs, people, you know, interns or whatever, apprentices. Now I'm like, you know, there is no other job that I know of in, I guess, production and post as being an assistant editor because you get to be with above the line people for you know, hours, days, months, sometimes years at a time. And, you know, a lot of times if you're working for a really good crew or you're working for a good, an, an editor who appreciates it or lets you do this, you can, you know, rub elbows and talk to these people and they get to know you way better than on any other, I guess, staff position on the show because they're sitting around waiting for the editor to finish, you know, whatever cut he's trying to make. And if you're pretty good, you know, at engaging and being actually, I guess, a sophisticated conversationalist, you know, you can talk to these people and they'll get to know you way better than, you know, a lot of other people on the crew. So I, I actually thought that, you know, editing was actually a pretty good gig. And then um, the editors, a couple of the editors at 30 something, uh, one was Victor Dubois and one was Marty Nicholson. They started like teaching me how to you know, work the system. They started teaching me how to, how to edit on, at the time they were using an Ediflex. I'm so dating myself, but they're using an Ediflex and they taught me how to, how to use it. And they gave me like, like these scenes to practice on. And so I would cut the scenes and then they would give me notes. And, you know, it was sort of like this little sort of like mentorship that was going on. And then they also told me that I needed to learn film because this was being cut on videotape. I needed to learn film. And so I went to the um, head of post at the studio at the time. And I said, you know, I want to learn how to sync dailies. And so she had me get together with this guy that she had in film shipping. And he taught me how to sync dailies and how to work a rewind and all that kind of stuff. And then at the time, Ed Zwick was directing Glory, the movie Glory, and Steve Rosenblum was was editing. And when they came back into town, 
their editing rooms were right across the street from ours. And so I went over there and I asked their assistants if they would let me do their trims. So they would basically say, yeah, absolutely. And they would, you know, they said, okay, there's seven bins out there in the hallway. You can start with those. And so I learned how to do trims on 35 millimeter film. And one of the assistants is now, um, the first assistant was Robert Frazen. Um, He's an editor now. And the other uh, assistant was Brent White. And he's now a big editor as well. And so, you know, so I learned how to do that. And then uh, it came time, I I was on 30-something for two seasons, season two and season three. And then it kind of came time for me to see if I could, you know, get sort of an apprentice job or something like that. And apprentices were sort of being phased out at the time. So it was kind of hard. And and it used to be, from what I understand, it used to be that, you know, big powerful people could call up the union and say, oh, I want to get this person in. And they would just let them in. Well, that went away before I got there. So I think I was probably one of the early people that started to get in when they would start to do that 100 days. You know, you get non-union, a hundred days of non-union work. So the, the guys at, uh, at 30 something, the executive producers were writing a TV movie that they were going to do. Um, and Peter Horton, one of the actors on 30 something was going to direct and they got Victor Dubois to edit the, uh, the movie. And they asked him, would he be willing to take me on as an apprentice on the movie so I could get my days? And so he said yes, and they paid me as an assistant editor. I got my 100 days doing that. And uh, and after that, an editor, um, at the time he was an assistant, but he's an Emmy editor, Emmy-winning editor now, Kevin Casey, um, called, I guess, a friend. He called Michael Canoe. I think that was it. He called Michael Canoe because Michael Canoe was, was working. He was going to work on Nightmare on Elm Street Part 6. And he called him and... And they needed another apprentice on that. So I got my first apprentice job officially on a union show on Nightmare on Elm Street Part 6. I can't remember what year it was. I want to say it was 92, but I'm not sure. Maybe 91. And then, you know, after that, I just... I started working in film and television and I was always like one of these assistants that could do, you know, assistants at the time were very, very separated. There were film assistants and there were video assistants or digital assistants or television assistants or whatever you want to call them, people who weren't in features. And I was actually a person who could go back and forth um, because I knew um, the digital systems, a couple of them, and I knew how to, you know, how to sync dailies and do cut lists and change lists and, you know, work on film. And I kind of really wanted, I I wasn't really like looking to move into being an editor so fast. What I really wanted was to be a first assistant in big features. And I just thought that that would be the most awesome thing because then I would never really have to look for work. I would just be hooked up with a film editor who would get the jobs and they would just call me and say, you know, we're just, we're going to jet off to, you know, this country or that country and work all over the world and, you know, do a film for two years and, you know, and it was going to be great. And it was, it would be like a long location movie or summer camp or something like that. And I would make a shit ton of money and it would be amazing. And, um, but I never, 
I never actually got there. I never actually got that job. I got close a couple of times, at least I thought I did, but I never actually got that. And, you know, now I'm kind of glad that I didn't because it would have sent me down a path that I certainly wouldn't be on the path that I'm on today. And I think that the path I'm on today, I could not have asked for better. You know, I, I just, I'm, you know, incredibly ecstatic about where my career is right this minute. And if I had been one of those feature assistants, I might still be one actually. It's very, very hard to move up as a feature assistant. Um, well, I'm, so I'm, that's I'm, the not, nutshell. Sorry, not to interrupt you. No, no, we, <laughs> the, we definitely have, we have more to go. We haven't even come to the good part yet. Um, uh, but there, there are several nuggets that I want to pull out of this already. Um, the, the first two things that really jump out at me is that number one, I didn't even know, and I've heard your story several times, but I wasn't even aware that you came into this business really having no interest or knowledge whatsoever of post-production, which I find really fascinating because most people that I interview that are at really, really high levels, they all have a very similar story, which is actually similar to mine as well, which is I grew up watching movies and I would shoot them with my eight millimeter camcorder or my VHS camcorder. And I was editing from tape to tape and I didn't even <laughs> realize it was a job. And then I went to college and like, oh, wow, I can get paid for this. Like I hear that story over and over and over and it is exactly the same as my own story. And you're is very different, which is that you're just, you really had no intention or interest whatsoever in post-production, but then you mentioned the word path. And that was one of the things I wanted to talk about because I have this, uh, this kind of manifesto that I wrote recently called the ultimate guide to making it in Hollywood. And mm -hmm. I try to break down in the most fundamental, simplest steps possible, how you can make it in a highly competitive creative field, because so many people will listen to a story and say, oh, well, I'm never going to get that job in the mailroom or meet that guy at MGM or I'm not going to get lucky enough for this to happen. Uh, but wait a minute, you said that word. I know I said it because I'm not oh, talking okay. about your story. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I was talking in hyperbole about other people. But the the idea is that people just feel that, oh, well, I, there's no way I'm going to have the same story that person did. I can't replicate it. But really, there are these fundamental steps that anybody can follow. And the first of which is that you were trying to find the right path. You were trying to find the right ladder to climb that made sense with the kind of lifestyle that you wanted with your own interests, with just something that worked as far as the type of job you would want. Um, and it's actually hilarious that you you uh, thought you were going to become a jet-setting career assistant, because um, I, I would say that even though you maybe uh, didn't end up flying the world, you've you've done okay so far. <laughs> so I, I, I find that very very interesting. But uh, speaking of the path, I think the the next period of time is really one of the most interesting parts of your journey and why I wanted so many people to hear your story and be inspired by it. So now let's continue on from this point of, you know, you've, you've jumped in, you become an apprentice and, you know, you're, you're in the pipeline and you're on your way up. My sincerest apologies for the interruption, but if you're a creative professional who spends long hours at your workstation, not only is the following promo not an interruption, but listening has the potential to change your life. Because working with a topo mat underneath you at a height adjustable workstation is a game changer. Let's learn a little bit more from ErgoDriven co-founder and CEO Kit Perkins, creator of the topo mat. The topo mat is the first anti-fatigue mat designed specifically for standing desks. The real benefit of a standing desk is movement. We found 
bringing in this cushioned terrain under your feet, your brain just subconsciously engages and you wander around and you get that movement at the standing desk that you need without even having to think about it at all. People will come to me at an event or a panel and they'll say, I got the topo mat because of you. Even when they had a mat, once they used this one, it was a total game changer. We've just heard time and time again that with topo, we've kind of hit the sweet spot that it's the right premium quality materials and a right shape that people are actually getting benefit out of this stuff. You spend more time here than anywhere if you do creative work the way that I do. So I would rather be driving around in a Ferrari than a Ford Pinto. And I feel like this is the Ferrari of the standing mat. One of the things you don't realize is that at a standing desk, your main interface to the world, your body's main interface to the world is the ground. If you're gonna invest in anything at that Ferrari level, it should be what you're standing on. Well, my goal is that for anybody that is a creative professional like myself, that's stuck in front of a computer for inordinate amounts of time of their waking life, they're doing it standing on a topo mat. So uh, you and I, my friend, one edit station at a time are going to change the world. I like it. That's a utopian vision I can get on board with. If you're a creative professional looking for a simple and affordable way to stay active, energetic, and focused while spending long hours at your height adjustable workstation, I can't stress enough how important it is to have the right mat underneath you, which is why I continue to share the Topo Mat as my number one product recommendation. To learn more about the Topo Mat and purchase yours, visit optimizeyourself.me slash topo. That's T-O-P-O. I assisted on some smaller type of things. And then, you know, like the, the digital system started to come in, but you needed like a training course, right? And to get the training course, you needed money. And so I asked, um, actually, no, a friend of mine um, offered, he said, I will lend you 500 bucks to take the Lightworks training course. Um, if, you know, and you can pay me back when, when you get a job, which was incredibly um, you know, generous, you know, at the time. And, and so, um, I, I went over to Lightworks and I took, uh, I think it was a week long class. Um, just, and it was really, you know, I already knew how to be an assistant. I just needed to know kind of what buttons to push and how that system worked. And, um, uh, I hope it's okay if I drop these names because I, I just think it's hilariously funny that, um, my career, I mean, that, that there are people now who, you know, have sort of blossomed to their own career. And I knew them, you know, even back then. So, um, the, my Lightworks teacher, his last, very, very last class was the one that he gave me. And then he went off to New York to assist Thelma Schoonmaker on Casino. And his name is Scott Brock. And uh, and he's still doing that, you know, which I think is pretty amazing. And So um, he stole your career assistant job. <laughs> I guess so. Maybe. I was not in, I wasn't ready to be that yet, you know, but that's kind of what I wanted to be. Yeah. So I, I did that. And then I worked on a few small, I think some television stuff. And, you know, I got like my first light works jobs, which was really important because it's like people, you know, I, I was having trouble getting the big feature jobs on film, even though I could do it. Um, but I could get the light works jobs because people were really wanting those assistants. So then I ended up doing a couple of those. I ended up doing a thing for HBO about Mike Tyson. And from there, uh, I went on my first big vacation. Like I had not had a vacation like in years and I went on a really big vacation to like uh, Tahiti and I actually sailed from Tahiti to Hawaii. 
um, on a boat. Um, and it was really amazing. But when I got back, it was like, okay, I need to, I guess, find another job, you know, and I wasn't really sure. And then somebody came up to me and said, Hey, you know, they're looking for assistance at Lightworks to do tech support, to show other assistants how to work the machine or troubleshoot and stuff like that. And so I went over there and I worked there for two years, basically at Lightworks, showing assistants how to do cut lists and change lists and, you know, and just basically doing tech support. And I learned so much about computers. Like I was like, you know, I mean, we were working actually on DOS computers, which was, you know, all the Avid stuff was on Mac computers, but Macs, you know, you can't really, you don't really get behind, you know, the interface. Whereas on DOS computers, you know, DOS is the bottom and then you put an interface on top of it. So I learned a lot. I learned how to build them. You know, I learned a lot as, you know, along with learning even more and more about how the computers work with cut lists and change lists. And then from there, I started to get actual feature jobs. I would have assistants call me. One friend of mine called me and she said, I'm getting ready to go to another feature, but I need somebody to take my place. I, you know, And so I went and did, and I finished up a feature for her. And from that, I got probably my biggest break was Goodwill Hunting. That was in 1997. And I was a huge, huge, huge Pietro Scalia fan and also a Joe Hutching fan because my feeling was that anybody who, you know, the guys who cut JFK were like editing gods. And I still feel like JFK is one of the best cut things I've ever seen. I am a huge fan of it. It is one of my very favorite movies. I just think that the editing is just so stellar, you know, just to let you know, people know if they don't know, it was actually edited on videotape. It was edited like you were saying, you know, your old school, you know, videotape to videotape, you know, it was edited like that. So I was a huge fan of that. And to actually work with Pietro Scalia, I was really, I felt really, really fortunate. I was like really excited about it. We actually worked in Gus Van Sant's house in Portland, Oregon. My editing bench was right in his living room and out my you know, the front window, I saw Mount Hood and out the side window, I saw Mount St. Helens all summer. It was pretty awesome. And I basically thought that that might be the one thing that I, you know, was gonna, I guess, catapult me into being a feature assistant. And it didn't. <laughs> Unfortunately, it didn't. But, you know, I kind of consider myself lucky because from there, TV just started calling and they kept calling. And from there, I was actually faking my way around Avid. I didn't know it. I was getting very, very nervous about it. But to do an Avid course, they needed like three or $4,000. And I was like, I don't want to pay this kind of money to learn <laughs> this system, you know? And so I would go to other people's cutting rooms, other assistants that I knew and kind of hang out and kind of watch what they did. And so I kind of learned Avid on the fly, uh, luckily. <laughs> and then, you know, like I said, TV kept calling and, and the system slowly went from Lightworks to Avid and I just kept working and working. And now I, I think it was probably about 15 years that I was an assistant editor and that's like way too long. <laughs> I think that's probably what you're referring to as far as like, you know, my story because I was I just, you know, it, it took a long time for me to actually like, you know, reorient the goal because I was still shooting for trying to be a jet setting first assistant and making, you know, several thousand dollars a week. <laughs> and uh, and I never got there, but I was working on a miniseries 
uh, in about 2005. And one of the, it was a mini series with like, I think we had like four or five editors and I think probably at least three or four assistants. We had a whole crew of people. And one of the editors was Lynn Willingham. And I was really, really, really excited to meet her because I was at the time, a, a very late to the party X-Files fan. And I was watching a lot of them in reruns. And I just thought she was just amazing editor. And her husband was editing my favorite show on television at the time, which was 24. And so I thought, wow, if I could meet both of them, that's like an editing powerhouse. And all of a sudden I'm on a miniseries with one of them. And I remember when I met Lynn Willingham, I said, wow, you know, hi, I'm Kelly Dixon. I've been a fan of yours for so long and she looked at me like I was nuts you know she's like uh okay and it's funny because we laugh about that now but you know I I totally understand how she felt at the time because it is kind of weird being sort of singled out as a celebrity when you didn't really get in this business and you don't feel like you're a celebrity and that's what I feel a lot I get I get a lot of people coming up to me and I, and it sounds very arrogant and I don't mean it to sound arrogant, but it's very, very odd to have people come up to you and just say, wow, you know, I love what you, you know, your work and what you did. And I'm just kind of like, um, all right. I mean, isn't there somebody better that you can like, you know, look up to? It's weird. I don't know. It's just very strange. And it's something that, that I am not, I'm still not very used to, and and I hope that I don't come off as ungracious. I don't mean to. It's just very strange. Well, Um, I would say that you're, without question, probably the least arrogant person I've ever met in my life. Oh, that's good. So you definitely you do do not come off as arrogant whatsoever. Uh, But yes, I've I've definitely been in uh, several conversations just with you where we've been at some event, and all of a sudden people came up and like fanboyed you, and I totally saw the face. You're like, oh my god, what are you talking about? No, come on. Yeah, like I've, I've totally seen that weird. face. So I, it's and I'm, very strange. You know, not not to sound arrogant myself, but I've been in that position as well, where if I go to certain events, then people are familiar with either my editing work or familiar with the podcast or the website, yeah. whatever it is. And it's just the weirdest thing. It's like, but I just sit in a dark room in front of a computer all day long. Like, what could possibly be cool or celebrated about that? Um, I know. But, but that, you know, yeah, it's, it's kind of it's, But I think it's it's more about the quality of the work and the emotions that you can evoke in the person watching, because it's not like you, there's still a lot that I want to unpack in the story, but just as a bit of a a tangent here, it's not like you are just transitioning from an assistant to editing a run of the mill TV show, like let's say NCIS. And I don't want to, you know, denigrate anybody that works on that show, but it's a very run of the mill formulaic show. But the type of work that you've done really kind of changed the game and the type of uh, material that we now say, wow, this stuff is amazing. And I hope that one day I can work on something as cool or as innovative as Breaking Bad or Better Call Saul. So I think that a lot of that is just because what you've done and the work that you've done and how you make people feel when they watch it, that excites them. So I, I would guess that that's part of it. Um, but uh, the- That sounds, that's cool. I, I appreciate you. I appreciate you saying that. Yeah, sure, of course. Otherwise, I'm just kind of like I'm I'm a little baffled sometimes. I think I think one of the things too about it though is that I think part of it is also when you know you put yourself out there publicly. And you know, I can say that I put myself out there professionally publicly because it's kind of fun 
you know, I just don't expect people to buy it. You know what I mean? But, but, you know, you put yourself out there like, Oh, and I did my own podcast on, you know, breaking bad. It was like, it was fun to do it. So I did it. And, you know, and I think what it does is it gives people a little bit of familiarity because, you know, you put your own personality into that stuff. It's just that, again, I, I think it's funny that or interesting that people buy it. Like you put something out there, but you're like, okay, people aren't going to really buy this, but they do. And so I think that a lot of it is, you know, that when you put yourself into some kind of public, I guess, setting or something where people can get familiar with you, you know, it's not, it's not crazy to believe that they will get familiar with you. It's just that I don't think I was really ready for it. And I, I don't think that I really expected it. Yeah, I, I can understand that. And, uh, you know, that I can assure you that nobody is getting excited to meet you because they aspire to the lifestyle that you or I live. It's like, oh, my God, I hope that one day I can sit in front of a computer for 60 hours a week. Like, oh, my God, that must be so cool. Like when you look at celebrities, you think, oh, they live in these mansions and they fly all over the world and they go to parties. Like nobody aspires to be an editor because of the lifestyle. It's because they want to be involved in cool, creative work. And as nerdy as we are, our buzz or our drug of choice is the adrenaline rush that we get from the timeline. When we put all these random pieces together, together that don't belong together and we make something and we we create a new emotion that you shouldn't have been feeling from these you know random disparate pieces and all of a sudden you feel something like that's exciting to us that's we yeah. we, we geek out on that and i think when doing it at such a, a high level that people just say, wow, like it's so amazing that you've put this work together and done these things. But I think for you specifically, it also is the story, which I want to get back to. And okay. one of the things that you said that I really, really want to hit on that I, uh, I think is really important is you had said in your very fun, self-deprecating manner, like I had been an assistant for 15 years and oh my God, that is just too long. Yeah. And there is no set number. There isn't like a, a handbook where you look at it and it says after X number of years, you move up from assistant editor to editor. Some people do it in five months. I happen to be one of those that was never an assistant, but I went the indie wow. route. I spent years and so I've <laughs> professionally, I've pretty much been an editor my whole career, but I spent over a decade working on stuff that nobody has ever heard of, either getting paid nothing or getting paid 500 bucks a week, 600 bucks a week as an editor, being my own assistant, Logging my own footage. So when people look me up today and they see the credits and then they look further back in the resume, they're like, how in the hell did you get to be where you are based on all these credits I've never heard of? So it it's really, it took me almost as long. I just had a different path, but there is no set number. And I think that the two things that I want to, to chat about, one of which is just this mindset that you must have had to continue going through thinking, well, I know I'm going to get there eventually. So I'm wondering what kept you going. And then the other thing that I want to talk about after that is just how quick the transition was, not just from assistant editor to editor, but to like superstar editor. So uh, let's, let's, I don't know if I can, <laughs> well, let's, I don't let's, know about the superstar. First, I want to just, I want to talk just a little bit about what the mindset was having spent so many years as an assistant. Cause I know assistants that'll be on their third or fourth year and like, Oh, I am so over being an assistant and I should have moved up by now. And this is ridiculous. And I just kind of laugh. I'm like, you have no idea. That, so I will tell you though, that 
I get annoyed when I hear that. I mean, I, I hope I'm not outing myself too badly and that people don't all of a sudden start to hate me about it. But I, that really to me is a, is very much a turnoff. And I think that when people say that, I mean, when people have that thought, just my own personal opinion is they should keep that to themselves because I, I feel to me that comes off very arrogant. And I think mostly because there are so many editors who are working now who have done so much work and have paid so many dues. And when people kind of, when young assistants or something kind of say, oh, you know, I I give myself, you know, two years max and I should be editing. I feel like that kind of comes off as saying, I'm just as good as all these people who have been doing this for 20 years. Somebody said that to me. I'm not going to mention that's one name I'm not going to mention, but somebody said that to me once at, of all places, the Ace Awards. I mean, we're standing there at the Ace Awards and, you know, I'm looking, I'm watching all of these editors that I have so much, like I'm in awe of them, you know, and they've been doing this for longer than I've been alive (laughs) probably not longer than I've been alive, but definitely longer than I've been editing. And like they, you know, have never been honored before. Like they'd never, you know, been nominated and stuff. And here I am, you know, probably at that point, I think I was on my fourth nomination for an ACE award. I've never won, but I've been nominated. Um, I've been very fortunate to be nominated, but I'm always like, I always want to keep it very, very much on the, on the DL. I like to keep it very low key. I don't like to talk about it. I don't like to, you know, I don't like to rub it. I don't like to advertise it, but I'm sitting there and I'm watching all these really famous editors that I look at as my mentors, whether they know it or not. And I'm listening to, you know, people tell me, oh, you know, I give myself two years and I sh- I'm going to be editing. And it's like, okay, you know what? You should keep that to yourself, especially right here in the, because it just, to me, I don't know. I don't know how you feel. And maybe I'm in the minority on this, but I just feel like, you know what? It's really great to have ambitions and goals. But I think with that, that is a little quick. I think that that's really quick. And you know what? It is, you know, people move up really fast, especially in television. You know, people move up super fast because there's just too much television right now. There's just too much. And the the talent pool has spread out. I was hoping actually that the talent pool in television was going to get very, very focused, almost like features, but with more people. But everybody was going to be very focused on less and more, uh, more sophisticated and, and better stuff. Unfortunately, you know, if you, you know, have ever written a journal, you can get a showrunner deal now in Hollywood. And so they need a lot of these editors. And I, my feeling with a lot of people is that they kind of figure, well, we don't really need really good editors. We just need like somebody to push the buttons because we're actually going to like, you just use them as a pair of hands. And my feeling is always, well, you you kind of need a good pair of hands, you know, you don't, you know, a bad pair of hands is, you know, just a bad pair of hands. They're clunky and they don't, you know, there's a lot that comes with experience, you know, so people are moving up very, very fast um, in, especially in television now. And some of them are exceptionally good. 
but I don't find a lot of people that are exceptionally good. I do know a few, but I don't know a lot of them. I, I know that there's a lot that are adequate and there's a lot that, you know, need a lot of work. But as far as like moving up so fast, uh, I don't really think that that's that good of a thing. I think that there's a lot to be said for having a really good mentor. There's a lot to be said for working with an editor who, you know, can, you know, work with you on, you know, the basic things, character, story, narrative, metaphor, simile, you know, all of those things that you need to work on, you know, shot selection, what makes things interesting? What does your eye, what does your heart say? You know, how long, you know, to stay in a shot, all of those things add up to, you know, what you end up using as your own personal style. And to jump into that, you know, I find a lot of younger um, assistants, uh, who are trying to move up so fast, you know, it's almost like they're putting together a puzzle and they're doing it very, very fast and stuff like that. But that doesn't always make for a good narrative. You know, it just makes you fast <laughs> at it. Um, well, the, the other the other piece that I think so many people miss when they're thinking about moving up quickly and for some people that, you know, that to the naked eye may seem young because they might be in their mid to late 20s. They might have been editing for 15 years now because that's the nature of the world that we live in with technology that like I started editing when I was nine or 10 years old. That was VHS to VHS. But now. A six-year-old can be editing digitally with iMovie, which is not that terribly different than editing, you know, on Final Cut Pro or Premiere or Avid because it's nonlinear editing. So I think that from the creative side, they're thinking, well, I've been editing for years and years. But in my mind, even if you have the most amazing editing chops and I hand you a scene as an assistant and you blow me away and it's the best edited scene I've ever watched in my life, you still don't have the experience that you need in the room yeah. managing people, managing schedules, managing emotions, managing raging, crazy personality personality. So there's so many more layers. Yeah. And managing, and managing problems. Most of the shows that I've ever worked on, even as an assistant, a lot, you're solving a lot of problems that unfortunately are there, you know, Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul, very, very fortunate to not, you know, I never experienced at the level and the percentage of problematic work that I have on other things. A lot of shows you end up like, you know, oh, you know, this just didn't turn out right. How can you fix it? Or, you know, and I, I, it's really a drag to have to fix things, you know, a lot, but I would say that most shows you're probably having to fix about, I don't know, 25%, 30%. That's pretty good. If you have to fix like half, that's a drag, but it exists, right? And, you know, those, you know, like, like Lynn Willingham always told me, she goes, you know what? Bad film makes you a really good editor. When you've got bad film, you, you definitely get to be a better editor because you're just having to do a lot of fixing and having to learn a lot. But the thing is, is that what I find is that editors with less experience, you know, I mean, look, you could have been editing your own, you know, little movies, for the last several years, but you're not editing somebody else's stuff, you know, and you're not editing for somebody else who wants you to solve these problems. Right. And that's what I'm talking about. And, you know, again, it's, I might be in the minority, but I just think that if you feel like, you know, you've been an assistant for two years and it's time for you to move up, my feeling is keep that to yourself. I'm not, I'm all about having ambition and wanting to do that, but you don't need to be very vocal, you know, about that, especially, I guess, you know, I would say probably choose your audience 
look at, you know, the, the, the company that you're in and, you know, just kind of be a little bit more respectful of the people who have come before you and, you know, really have, you know, made this their life's work and they've been doing it forever. I mean, you know, I mean, look, I I will say that like all these people, you know, older than me, some of them younger than me are all mentors to me. And, you know, it's like, look, you know, Michael Kahn, I guess, is a mentor to me. I've never met him. I've seen him, you know, um, many times. Um, but, you know, I'm not one of those people. I don't go up to the editors at all. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, all of these people are mentors and I want to treat them with the respect. There's no way that I would like sit there and say, oh, well, I can do that. You know, he's been doing this for, you know, 50, 60 years. And I'm not about to go up and say, oh, well, you know, two years and I'll be editing those just like him. That's crazy. And I think the what what you need to do if you are one of those people listening or, you know, somebody that's thinking I'm going to do it in two years and then I should be an editor. I just deserve it. You can think that all you want. But my advice to you would be to prove it. Prove that you can do it. Get in the chair and show them you are outstanding, which is going to transition us to where I want to go next. Wait, well, wait, wait. one other thing that I will say too. I mean, I apologize. I no, no problem. Show, but the other thing that I will say as well is what I find a lot now, especially, is I find that a lot of people that I talk to, whether it be editors, whether it be directors, whether it be writer producers, I find that. I want them to be able to speak to me about the narrative. You know, I want to be able to converse about the narrative, you know, whatever the story is and where we're at. And I a lot of times find that, unfortunately, and it doesn't matter if they're editors, directors, producers, writers, sometimes, not all the time, definitely not all the time, you know, luckily, oh, I said that word. But in a different context. In a different so context, it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> but um, I find that when you can talk to these people about the material and not about what was shot, but what the intention was or is or is aspires to be, that when you when you can get into conversations like that, it's it's one of those things where it kind of reorients where your work might go. Like, let's say you just, you know, you have a scene where the person is, you know, supposed to be projecting sort of, I don't know, a confused sadness. And, you know, you cut it like that and they kind of look at it and they're like, yeah, um, I don't know. You know, I feel like in a way she should sort of be angry about the sadness. And you're like, Oh, okay. Well, when I read the script, you know, I kind of felt like this. And when they toned the script and the director's like, yeah, but you know, I talked to the actor and then we had talks with the, with the writer and they kind of agree. And there's something that's coming up in two episodes. And when you can have conversations like that, then you're like, okay, you know what? Let me go back and let me look at this scene and sort of find the subtext that, you know, most likely is there, but it wasn't necessarily there, you know, because, you know, you were going by one piece of the puzzle. And so what I find is that, especially 
you know, I talk a lot about with directors, producers, writers, and also assistant editors or people that I'm mentoring. I talk a lot about being with a character. You know, it's way more interesting to be with the character, us as an audience, be with and connected to a character rather than standing back and watching that character run around and do stuff because that part is not interesting. When you break the fourth wall down, even though it's kind of weird because in television, but we can because we can be with characters and in the way that, that we choose choose to show how a character discovers something or how a character feels about something or that character's personal inner voice. You know, a lot of times we're the only, we as an audience are the only ones that are privy to this. And as an editor, you actually, or we are actually the ones that get to decide how this information is disseminated. You know, I had uh, something I was working on a couple of weeks ago where it was sort of a scary thing. And the director's like, yeah, but the jump scare is just not working. And I'm like, well, yeah, the jump scare isn't working because you've already revealed the scary part of this. You know, you've you've shown us, you know, the dog barking, right? Instead of us being surprised about the dog at the end, right? You've already shown the dog sort of loping along the fence line and sort of like the close-ups of the paws, you know, sort of, you know, pawing the ground and, and the snarl of teeth. And I'm like, at that point, we know there's a dog. We know the dog is back there. So there is no jump scare. And I said, if you want a jump scare, let's look at how to reorient this and play this so we are surprised that there's a dog. Um, does any of that make sense? Am I making sense at all? I have spent almost 10 years now raving about how much I love my topo mat. And I have finally discovered what I now consider the topo mat of desk chairs, the Core 360. The Core 360, spelled Q-O-R, is designed to keep me constantly moving while seated in an upright and balanced position. To learn more about how it works, let's hear from Core 360 founder, Dr. Turner Osler, about why he created the Core 360 active sitting chair. When you sit badly, you sit badly for many hours a day. And that's really what the problem is. It's very hard to make yourself get up and do jumping jacks every half hour. But if you just swap to a chair that requires you to be muscularly engaged in order not to fall off, it's an easy bar to clear. For the procrastinators out there who hear all of the statistics and know how bad sitting is and it's the new smoking and they're thinking, that's something I'll worry about in a few decades, you're gonna feel the effects of having more energy at two o'clock in the afternoon or four o'clock in the afternoon that day. And that's the whole point. Your core muscles will be stronger. You'll have less back pain. All of this will make you more available for the rest of the pursuits of your life, your kids, your hobbies, your whatever. For those those of us who need to practically live in front of computers to do our best creative work, the Core 360 is going to level up your game. Keep your body moving and keep the creativity flowing. To learn more and purchase what I consider to be the topo mat of desk chairs, please go to optimizeyourself.me slash core 360. That's optimizeyourself.me slash QOR360. No, I, I think it makes complete sense. And I think this just proves even further why thinking that you can transition after two years is just something that you should be able to do because you can't learn how to have a sophisticated conversation like that by being on Avid every single day, cutting a bunch of scenes for your editor and thinking, well, clock says yeah. it's two years. It's my time. <laughs> yeah, you and know? that's kind of why I'm bringing this up because I'm finding that a lot of people – 
especially when I talk to younger assistants and, you know, younger editors that they, they aren't really thinking about this. And even when I'm like trying to, you know, talk to my assistant or mentor people or something like that in my cutting room, or even talking to, you know, a director who, you know, I'm like, okay, you know, there, there's a time here where we're with your character. And then there's a time when we're with this other character. Do is that what you want? Are you wanting us to split, to sort of split our allegiances here as an audience? What, what is it that, you know, you want us as an audience to feel? How is this, you know, and, and I'm, what I find a lot of times is (laughs) not a lot, hopefully, but is they kind of give you a blank look, you know, like, or, you know, they don't really think of it like that. I'm going to sort of out my assistant who is a fantastic assistant. He's really, really super good, but he's new to scripted and he's learning. One of the things I gave him a scene to cut and I gave it to him like a week, you know, prior or something. And I said, you don't need to have this done until Wednesday or whatever. So Wednesday comes around and I said, Hey, you know, let me take a look at what you got, you know, so I can give you some notes because I really don't have time, you know, and I want you to go back and, you know, take a look at it. And so I can't remember, I couldn't remember what scene, like what scene number it was, like where it actually fell in the script. And I said, Hey, so wait a minute, this is not a trick question, but before, before you show me this, what has just happened to this character? You know, and he's like, um, and I said, okay. I said, I didn't mean that as a trick question at all. I was just, you know, wanting to know, so I didn't have to look it up in the script, but this is a teaching moment for you. I said, next, I want you to always be able to know what happened to that character right before what you're going to show me, because you need to know that as an editor anyway. You know what I mean? To start editing this scene, you need to know what this character has been through. And also because in that particular scene, that character, there was a lot of subtext, you know, and a lot of different pieces of, you know, that narrative's puzzle that had to be, you know, brought into this situation. So it was like, and, you know, I said, look, I'm not trying to out you at all, you know, and, 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 but, you know, in any other situation, when you're talking to any other editor, you, you know, besides me and you're presenting something, I want you to absolutely be able to tell that person what has just happened, you know, and that's something that, you know, cause a lot of times I did it too. When I was a younger editor, you know, or a younger assistant, it was just like, oh, how cool can I put together this puzzle? What kind of, you know, what, what kind of cool shots can I like, what kind of cool juxtaposition can I do? You know, I admit it. I was doing it on Breaking Bad, you know, but luckily that's, there's a word again, but different context, right? Luckily I was also being mentored at the time and I was able to like on that show, we had such a great amount of creativity. We had a great latitude for creativity that I could do that. But then when producers would come in, they'd be like, yeah, that's cool. But why, you know, why are, why would you do that? Let, you know, where, one of the things that Vince Gilligan would always say, well, I don't, I don't know where, where we're at. Where's Walt's head at? Not like where we're at in the scene, but like, where's Walt's head at? Where, where am I? You know, this is sometimes he would get on me and say, Kelly, this is really cool, but it's just a jumble of stuff. I need a little, you need to be a little bit more directed in here. And, you know, I took that and, and then I would, 
you know, rethink it and hopefully keep some of the cool juxtaposition, but also, you know, look at, you know, how, how does this play with the rest of the narrative? Because that's what's really important here. And I think one of the the tendencies that I see so many times from younger editors, and again, I'm totally guilty of this myself, and I may still be guilty of it. Like you were saying, you know, you're, you're not so much where the character is or where the story is. The tendency in your head is, I want to show people how good I can edit this, yeah. right? Yeah, it's like, exactly. how good can I make these cuts and can I impress them with my ability to edit a scene? But really, you have to take a much more zen-like, invisible approach where sometimes the best version is going to be, look at how good I am at editing. And luckily, Breaking Bad has a lot of those examples with all the amazing montages and transitions. Like, you do really get the ability to show, here's what I can do with my craft. But at the same time, there's so many more subtle things that are done on a show like that or really in any type of show that's going to be character driven where yeah. a lot of your work is going to be completely invisible it's going to be thankless nobody's going to know why they're so in love with a character at a very specific moment other than the editor they're like oh i know why you feel that way right now it's because i did x y and z five minutes ago and then two minutes ago and i kind of led you down this invisible path to here but nobody's ever going to celebrate you for that unless they recognize it as a fellow craftsman yeah that's 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 totally it. And and that's, I think, where putting in the work, putting in the time. And I, you know, look, I mean, my friend Kabir, and you know Kabir, he um, kind of did the same thing you did, you know, where he was editing music videos and stuff like that for, you know, he was never an assistant, you know, but he was his own assistant. You know what I mean? So he did that as well. And, you know, it's like we all kind of come up in a different way, but I do think that there is a there there's an advantage to you know working with an editor a mentor you know for a while rather than trying to be on this fast track to editing because you know it's like you want your pieces you want the work that you do to have a soul and have a life and be you know not just surfacey you want it to be to have depth and to have subtext and you know i find that you know, even with my own work, I just kind of have to look at it and be like, this is bullshit. You know, this is not right. What can I do here to like make, you know, us as an audience lean forward? What, what, you know, what I need to like find a way to interpret this material in, I don't have the shots. So what else can I do? And I just find that a lot of that is, you know, a lot of brain work and a lot of experience and then just a lot of messing with, you know, film for a long time. Um, when I was, I met Lynn Willingham on this miniseries and I really wanted to work with her, but she moved to another job that had an assistant already. And I just figured, okay, well, you know, whenever she calls, I'm going to leave whatever I'm doing and go work with her. And, um, she ended up calling, um, about, three or four months later, uh, the assistant decided to leave and not stay on the job. And I was working with a really, really good friend of mine, a fantastic editor who's not editing anymore on uh, Grey's Anatomy. I did about, I don't know, three or four weeks on Grey's Anatomy. I don't remember what season it was. I think maybe season two or three. And Lynn Willingham called and she said, hey, do you want to come and edit? And I, I mean, uh, assist me. And I was like, man, I hate to leave my friend who's a fantastic editor. But I was like, look, I know that I'm going to get to cut more with Lynn Willingham than I'm going to get to cut with my friend because he was a new editor. And I knew he'd be mad at me. And I hoped not for very long. 
And he, he was mad at me for about two weeks and then he understood. And I went over and worked with Lynn Willingham on Without a Trace for two seasons. The first season that we worked, I edited a lot of stuff. I edited a lot of scenes. And during the hiatus of the second season, I built my own Avid. I basically built um, a really great DOS computer, a Windows computer. And um, that was the callback to my days at Lightworks. Um, I've built a really great computer and I and I put Avid for Windows on it and I brought it to work. And I had my own Avid at my desk with two monitors. And we only had one assistant Avid for three assistants at Without a Trace. And so now I didn't have to like wait in line. I could do all my work on my own Avid. And I started cutting more. And what I asked her before we even started the season, um, the second season that I worked, I believe it was season five, I said, how do you feel about me cutting half of each show? And she was like, I'm good with that. And I'm like, okay. So I, you know, basically went in there and I was cutting, you know, half of every episode that we did. And she would obviously look at the stuff and approve it and send me back with notes. And there were a lot of daring things that I would try. And she would be like, you know what, this is some of the best, coolest stuff that I've seen, but it's not going to fly with these producers. So go back and, you know, retool it and make it a little bit more conventional, (laughs) which sucks. But I remember at one point she showed a scene. I wish I had saved this scene too, because it was really good. She showed a scene to Jonathan Kaplan. Jonathan Kaplan at the time was a producing director on Without a Trace. And Jonathan Kaplan, as you'll remember, he uh, was the director of the Jodie Foster movie where she was raped and and was uh, and she got an Oscar for that. What's it called? Uh, do you remember what it was called? No, I'm, I'm blanking sorry. on it too. I'm blanking on it. <laughs> I can't believe it. Anyway, um, he's an amazing uh, director and she showed it to him and I didn't know she showed it to him. She said, I just want you to see what my assistant has done with this scene. Although we can't use it, I just want you to see it. And he actually came up to me, called me down to his office, which was in a whole nother part of the lot. And I went in there and he said, I just want you to know, I saw that scene that you did and I thought it was one of the best things that I had ever seen. And I'm just like, wow, you know, it was really amazing. And, you know, again, I wish I had saved it because it was pretty cool. But to get, you know, a compliment like that was amazing, especially from, you know, a director that, you know, that that you probably never would have the chance to work with, you know, on a regular basis. But I will say that um, the other thing about the reason that I tell that story is, uh, not the tech, not the Kaplan part, but cutting half the show is that, you know, and you'll know this too, Zach, because you mentioned it, you know, a little while ago that, you know, you need to like get your chops up to, to be doing this. It's not easy. It's, it's easy to cut a scene or two every once in a while. It's not easy to be responsible for a whole show. You know what I mean? Well, and especially on a deadline work. too. And yeah. do your system work. Yeah. And I do mean. your system work and all of that. So um, what I always tell people, especially if I'm mentoring an assistant, seriously, if, you know, if I mean, and by seriously, meaning I'm really, I really am working with that assistant to try and get them ready to start cutting, um, like to, to get them ready to be sharing a half a show. My friend Juan Garza, who is an editor who is one of my mentors, he always told me, he says, um, and I tell other people this too, cut a scene a day, start by cutting a scene a day, you know, every day cut one scene. And then once you've got that down, start cutting two, 
Well, you know, if you can start cutting two, two scenes a day for your editor and you can, you know, and hopefully, you know, your editor's cool with that and get some notes and stuff like that. If you can keep up that pace, that's pretty good. Right. And then um, you can start talking to them about cutting an act and hopefully you can work yourself up to cutting half a show. When I, I worked on the pilot for luck. Uh, and that's, I can use that word because that's like a, that's once again, out of, of context. <laughs> <laughs> so I worked on the pilot for luck um, or the, yeah, the luck pilot for Michael Mann. It was my second editing job. And I met an assistant there named Chris McCaleb, uh, who was really super editor, but he didn't think he was. And he also was, he was doing a lot of, uh, of writing, directing and producing for his own web series. I mean, this guy was like, I mean, he would come to work at like seven a.m. and leave work at like 2 a.m. and go shoot, you know, his stuff for an hour and then go to bed for three hours and come back to work. And I'm like, okay, I need to get you out of the Michael Mann, you know, place and get you into a regular television show because you need to have more time to go do this extracurricular stuff that you're doing. So I tried to get him on a couple of things over the next couple of years. And then I found myself with a sort of an interim hiatus job for a couple of months. And I asked him to come on to that. It was a little, uh, I believe an ABC, little ABC show. And he came on knowing that it was only going to be for like two or three months. And we worked really well together. And, and I kept giving him scenes to cut and he kept doing better and better and better. And then it turned out that the assistant that I had inherited on Breaking Bad, which was, I think, the second half of season five. So the last eight episodes of the show, he ended up retiring. And I was like, are you sure? It's only, you know, eight more episodes. And he's like, yeah, you know, I don't I, I'm going to enjoy the show as a fan. So I'm like, OK. So then I asked Chris, hey do you want to, you know, come do the last eight episodes of Breaking Bad? And he came over and I said, here's the deal. I'm going to share a credit with you on this, but I want you to always be editing. I want them to see you at the Avid always editing. And I said, you know, I'm not going to, I'm only going to be able to share one credit, unfortunately, but I want you to be editing. I want you to be editing a lot. And he did. And we worked really well together and um, he was really great at taking direction, but he worked his ass off as an assistant too, because his sound effects were incredible. His comp work was incredible and he really worked very tirelessly. So I had absolutely no problem. And then by the end, I just said, you know, you've, I, I would start to ask him, I'd say, okay, start adding up. You know, when I give you a scene or two here and there, I want you to add up, you know, the time because I'm like, look, you know, if I'm going to give you half a credit, you better have edited half the show. Right. And so, you know, like on the first episode we did together, it was like, I think he edited like 12 minutes and I'm like, eh, 12 minutes, I'm going to cut it, you know, and then he upped it to 15 or 20 minutes, you know what I mean? And so, but the last two episodes, he had actually edited half and I said, okay, you choose whichever show you want you can have half of that one and I'll just, you know, take the credit for the rest of them. And, uh, and it worked out well. I mean, it worked out really well for him. He got, he got an Emmy nomination out of it. And, uh, and I think an ACE nomination as well out of it, but, uh, but he worked his butt off. And so what I would say, you know, to a lot of people, I have said it to many assistants, like, you need to talk to your editor, tell them what your goals are, tell them what you'd like out of it and see if they're okay with that. And then talk to them about, you know, hey, 
I want to cut a scene a day. And you know what? If you have an editor who's not cool with this, hopefully you don't. But, you know, hopefully you get editors that are cool with this. But if you have one that's not cool with this, then you know what? What you really need to do is do it on your own. And you need to be very respectful of the material. Ask them if they mind if you cut some stuff. They don't have to look at it, They, you know, and you'll keep it away from them and stuff like that. I just can't imagine that there are editors who say no. But I know that that probably might happen. Unfortunately, but, it's actually very common. So. That's fucked up. That's yeah. jacked, I, I really think. But whatever you need to do, what you need to do is you need to keep cutting and you need to cut every day. Thank you so much for investing both your time and energy listening to today's show. If you were inspired by this conversation, don't forget to subscribe in your podcast app of choice and most importantly, leave a review because that helps move the show to the top of iTunes and get our message out there to those who need it the most. Simply visit optimizeyourself.me slash subscribe to never miss another episode. Lastly, stay safe, healthy, sane, and most importantly, be well. One last thing before I lose you. If you haven't already, I want to make sure that you subscribe to my free weekly Case of the Mondays newsletter because it is where I share my best advice, strategies, and mindsets to help you design a creative career that you absolutely love showing up for every Monday morning. When you sign up, I'm even going to send you a bonus five-day email course to help you clarify and prioritize the next small steps in your unique path to success. To sign up, just visit optimizeyourself.me slash newsletter, and I will see you in your inbox.